Well, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Obviously, nobody here got sick at their Thanksgiving gathering, which is wonderful. Um, I love Thanksgiving. So glad to be here today. Hey, we're going to be going through Genesis chapter 2 and looking at uh, the creation of man, God's purposeful plan for leadership. I was thinking about that over this Thanksgiving. You know, I have this friend, and he just loves to share things with people. And uh, every time he does something really cool, he wants to include somebody else. And um, he cooked this meal that he just thought was amazing. And so he got all the ingredients, ordered them online, and sent them to a friend with a recipe so that they could cook it and have the same food. And I was just thinking about what a, just what an incredible personality trait to always want to bless other people. I was just thinking, when was the last time I went to a steak restaurant, ate this amazing steak? And when I was walking out, I saw a stranger and just said, hey, I just had the best steak. Do you have time for dinner? If you go over there, I'll pay for you to eat that dinner. Just, just this joy to see other people enjoying things that you like. And I was just thinking about that quality, and I couldn't help but think about that as I read Genesis chapter 2 and just thought about God's creation and how good God is and how He just pours out grace and kindness and blessing obviously to a greater degree than anything we see on earth. You know, as I think about this, you know, God was perfectly, eternally good, totally happy and satisfied. You've probably heard people say things like, God was alone in the universe and He just couldn't bear to be alone, so He made people so He could have a relationship with them. You know, God did not create people because He had a need. God created people purely out of His own goodness to share His goodness with people. So He creates this amazing universe, a perfect universe that people could enjoy. He makes mankind in His image, and He says, I have ultimate dominion over everything. I'm going to give you dominion over the earth, and everything uh, exists for my glory, and I'm going to let you work and participate in that. I'm going to make you in my image, and I'm going to give you the best possible thing that anybody could have. I'm going to give you a relationship with me. That is the greatest gift that God could give. Nothing could ever be as good and satisfying. I'm so amazing that you could never even comprehend me. So I'm going to make a universe that the more you look at it and the more you study it, you are just going to be blown away by how big I am when you look at how huge the universe is, when you look at the tiny little intricate elements of of this universe that we live in, molecules and atoms, when you study that, you're going to see my incredible wisdom and just how much I know. And when you taste food and the warm sunshine shines on you, you're just going to experience my goodness. So I'm going to make a creation that even though you could never comprehend me, The more you look around at the world that you live in, you are going to come a little bit closer to understanding me. I'm going to give you, I'm going to make man and I'm going to create woman and I'm going to make marriage so that you can understand what it's like to have a close, intimate, personal relationship. I'm going to allow you to have kids so that as your kids grow up and you look at them and you can kind of see how they look a little bit like you and they look a little bit like your spouse, and that's just going to fill your heart and you're going to be so warm when you see that. You're going to be able to love your kids and, and teach them and just see them, and you're going to catch a tiny glimpse of what, what it's like to have a relationship with me, and you're going to know a little bit of how I think about you as you think about your kids. 
And God just makes this perfect world. And then he says, I'm going to make honoring and obeying me as easy as possible. I'm going to put you in a world, and I'm going to make trees and and fruit and and food, and it's going to be beautiful and attractive, and you're going to love it. And everything you look at is just going to be good. And then I'm going to tell you, you can have everything. But I'm going to give you an opportunity also to worship and obey me. I'm going to pick one tree. I'm going to put it in the middle of the garden. And I'm going to say, everything you see that looks so good, you can have it. But this one tree, don't eat from that one tree. And so (laughs) it couldn't be easier. And yet somehow people screwed it up. Adam and Eve did, but I think if we think about it, if we think about the way we live our lives, if that was you and me in the garden, we would have messed it up too. And then as soon as Adam and Eve mess up creation and they break their relationship with God, they cause the fall of the whole human race, they cause the fall of the universe, the world, the first thing that God says is, I'm going to blow you away even further when you see how much I love you, I'm going to make a way for you to be redeemed and to be forgiven. And you're going to see a different side of me that you never would have seen. You're going to see my wrath and my hatred towards sin. You're going to see the pain and sorrow that comes from rebelling against me. But you're going to see my goodness, my grace, my compassion, my love, and the way when you break things, I can fix them. You know, that's, that's what we see in the opening chapters of Genesis. And, and that's one of the things I would say is that as we read these stories, man, it is not just some mythical rep- representation of something. This is real life. This is things that really happened, that God really did. And there is so much that we learn as we think about those things, and then we think about our lives And it reminds us of how we should live and how we should think and what we should do. And one of the things I will tell you is there will be some things today when we read Genesis chapter 2 that will just strike some people and they'll just go, oh man, that's really troubling and I don't like that. And when we next week look at Genesis chapter 3, there's things that people will look at and just go, man, that just doesn't seem right to me. You know, that's the cool thing about Genesis 2. We realize that what God makes is perfect and good. And in Genesis 3, we understand what broke, and we understand why when sometimes we look at God's good instructions, God's grace, God's kindness, God's goodness, we understand why we look at the good things that God does and says, and then we think to ourselves, I don't like that. And when that happens, it's because there's something in us that's broken, and that's part of what God wants from us is to be His humble children for us to realize, God, I love you, and everything that you say is good and true, and then for us to just decide, no, even when it seems crazy, I am going to love, honor, and obey God. And so I want to jump into uh, this chapter this morning, and I just want you to know that, that God created man in His own image, and our purpose, the purpose of mankind, and when I say man today, almost always, I'm going to be talking about mankind not just men, although there will be some things for men. Um, But God has made us in His image to enjoy His goodness, and that includes functioning in the roles that God intends us to function in. 
And when we do that, when we function in leadership the way God wants us to lead, when we function in submission in the ways that God wants us to submit, when we do that, um, that is something that brings blessing and human flourishing. And every time we step out of that, well, the same things happen in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve stepped out of it. It's not good for us. And so what we're going to see is that, number one, mankind was made in God's image to lead on his behalf. By the way, that includes men and women, um, to worship him and obey him. The second thing is that spiritual leadership has a purpose. God has a purpose for spiritual leadership. And spiritual leadership should be encouraged and it should be exercised. And those are some things that we'll see. And then the other thing is that spiritual leadership leads to human flourishing. So that's what we're going to look at. So let's start with number one, and we're going to go back into chapter one of Genesis. And we're just going to think about this, the fact that God made men and women in his image to worship him. That is our purpose. So let's read Genesis 1.26. We'll start there. And it just says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. That is leadership. That is over the, over the world, over creation, that men and women have leadership over that because men and women are both made in God's image over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You know, by the way, that is partly, that dominion is part of what it means to be made in God's image. God has made man his representatives on earth. And the same way God has dominion, we have dominion. And God's asked us to exercise that on his behalf. It's something that we do. It's an expression, actually, of worship. Everything that God intends us to do has as its end worshiping God. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, He created him, male and female. He created them. You know, um, God specially created men in His own image. And one of the things we see right at the beginning is, how many genders are there? There are two. There's male and there's female. And who defines um, what a gender is? Is gender based on how we feel? Is gender based on something in culture? No, God is the one who creates and determines gender. And one of the things that you realize is that as you read the book of Genesis, it lays a foundation and actually solves every problem that we have in our culture. Every problem that comes out of our culture is an expression of rejecting the things that God has said are true. And one of the things we do in life is we realize that we're broken, and it, it is no surprise that people grow up and don't feel in line with things that are true. God's good creation, that's not a surprise. There's not a single one of us that just naturally gravitates towards things that are good and right. We all are broken. We all gravitate towards sinfulness. And that's one of the important things for us to think about personally and for us to realize as we train, as we disciple, as we raise kids from the time they're young, we teach them from the very beginning that what is true is what God says is true. And we're framing their thinking. We're preparing them for the day 
that they will feel something that is in contradiction to what God says. And we're teaching them how to think about that. That's going to happen. And when it happens, we trust God. Hey, read the Bible. Learn all the Bible stories. By the way, it's one of the reasons kids need to be in Sunday school. And it's so that they can, from the very beginning, be learning about what God says about life. So that they can learn all the Bible stories that God has put in the Bible for us to be able to learn and think about life. And then it becomes, like, that's like this foundation that as a parent, you could just rattle through the Bible. Remember this story when this person didn't trust God? And look, look how that turned out terribly. Do you remember this story over here where this person just felt like obeying God would be terrible, but when they chose to obey God anyway, the way they were blessed? You are going to face that in your life a hundred different ways. And every time you face it, here's how you think about it. And you know, parenting and leadership is purposeful. And we don't wait until somebody's having a tremendous problem to try to help them learn to think about it. We start way before the problems present themselves. And, and that's one of the things that we need to understand about Genesis. It is so important for us to read, to think about and to understand, and to be soft-hearted toward people who struggle. And we all relate to that, right? And so, God has that answer. You know, Jesus, when He refers back to… One of the things in the New Testament is whenever God… Whenever the New Testament is referring to marriage, or to people, or to sexuality, or any of that stuff, it always goes back to Genesis chapter 2. By the way, not Genesis 3 in the fall, but Genesis chapter 2, um, God's intention and purpose. And so, one of the things that we see here is that God made men and women equally in His image. And so, we stand on the same ground. God has given men and women the commission to have dominion over the earth. That's something that we do together in teamwork. You know, we see that in uh, the New Testament, Galatians 3.28, we see God's equal value for men and women, and it says, neither is there Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. We have equal standing before God in salvation. You look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse uh, 7, it says, likewise, you husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Um, God is just saying to men and women equally and to husbands who are physically stronger than women. Um, so there we see difference, that men and women are not the same, and yet God before Him has put everybody on equal standing, a fellow heir of the grace of life, and God just says to men, God cares how you treat your spouse. And if you're not living with your wife in an understanding way, God doesn't listen to you when you pray. And so that's a very powerful statement. And yet, we're different. And it's, it's, um, it, that's not revolutionary, right? That men and women are different. You know, it's, it's crazy. Some of the things I see on TV where people will, will talk about pregnant people. And then, and then you'll just say, well, can a man give birth? And the answer to that, just so you all know, is no. Um, only women give birth. Only moms can give birth. And physically, men and women are different. 
And, and God intends us to be equal, but God also has made us unique. And that's not earth-shattering. That is so obvious. And by the way, it's been obvious for thousands of years. We've just recently become confused about that. God created men and women with differences. And um, at, to say anything different is an expression of foolishness. You know, just about the whole issue of women being weaker. Did you know that the fastest woman can run 100 meters in 10.49 seconds? That's pretty good. Um, I'm going to just go out there and say there's nobody in this room that could do that. But you know that the fastest man can run 100 yards in 9.5 seconds, like almost a whole second faster? Did you know that there are over 6,000 men who have run 100 yards faster than the fastest woman who's ever run 100 yards? Um, and is this earth-shattering information? We confused about this? I mean, it's why we have men and women sports, right? Because we recognize that while God loves us and while we have equal dignity, we are not the same. Now, women have been created to bear children, and women are unique. Men and women are unique in many ways. And, you know, that's reflected in uh, what Paul says. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. As woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. And so what's interesting is that we have a culture that says if you view life and if you view people the way that God tells you to, then you're a terrible, bigoted person and a hateful person. And the answer to that is no. Um, the way that we genuinely love and encourage one another is to think about each other and to think about life the way God tells us to. One of the things I find is that people who dismiss the opening chapters of Genesis have a tendency to go throughout Scripture, and they don't just dismiss Genesis, they dismiss all the things that they read. And anytime they read something that doesn't fit with their personal preferences, they just dismiss it. And I think that people's position on various things in Scripture is actually less important than the way we approach and think about Scripture to start with. It says in verse 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish, over the birds, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 29, and God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that, that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its, fruit, with its fruit in it. You shall have them for food to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath. I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and there was a sixth day. God's very good. His creation is good. God created the world so that people would flourish. And coming to grips with God, what God says, understanding it, and embracing it leads to flourishing. Let's look at the second thing. Spiritual leadership has a purpose. And I would just say the purpose of spiritual leadership, and I would just say this too, all leadership, all right leadership is spiritual leadership. 
When you rip the spiritual element out of it, I don't care how great a leader is, people who write books, or you just say, that is the most amazing, inspiring leader. If you pull the spiritual part out of leadership, it's actually a corruption of leadership. And it's not that we can't learn about leadership from unbelievers. It's not that we can't learn about science and things like that from unbelievers. It's that anytime a person takes God out of something, it pollutes whatever they do. And so you can study science all you want. You can be as smart as, you, as smart as a human person can be. And when you take God out of it, it is corrupted and polluted. You can be the greatest leader, but when you take God out of that, it corrupts and pollutes any leadership. And so God has a purpose of leadership, and it is spiritual leadership, and that is the worship of God, the good of mankind, and the good of creation. Here's verse 4, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no brush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And the midst was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, it's interesting how people approach um, Genesis chapter 2, and some people would say, oh, this is a totally different story of creation than Genesis 1, when actually the way to understand this is that Genesis chapter 2 is God zooming in on the most important part of Genesis chapter 1, and that's His creation of mankind. And so He explains the whole creation, and then He goes back and He says, I'm going to highlight the creation of man. And so what he's talking about here in Genesis chapter uh, 2, verse 5, when he says that there was no, brush, in the, there was no uh, brush of the field, there was no small plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Now that is not a reference to the fact that God didn't create plants on the third day. Um, this could be, there's a few things that this could be a reference to, but one of them, for example, could be weeds, thorns and thistles that had not yet grown, that doesn't happen until God curses the ground. It could be certain types of plants. And one of the things is God is creating Adam and He's saying, I want you to work the garden, I want you to keep the garden, I want you to cultivate it. God creates plants, and then He allows Adam to do work and see the fruit of his labor. And so there's, there are some challenging things in this, but the, but the concept that this is a different account than Genesis 1 is completely inaccurate. Um, Genesis 2, 7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So, by the way, just something for you to think about. Do you know which member of the Trinity formed Adam out of the dust? Like, which member of the Trinity did that? You guys know? Yeah, it was Jesus. Did you guys know it was Jesus that did that? You know, uh, John chapter 1, verse 1, or, uh, and following, nothing that has been made was made apart from Jesus. He made everything. Colossians 1, 16, in heaven and on earth, spiritual and uh, both, both spiritual and, and earthly, everything was created by Jesus and for Jesus, and nothing was created um, that has been made except through Jesus. 
So Jesus is the member of the Trinity actually creating this. And this, this language is anthropomorphic in the sense of um, just putting God in human terms. But one of the things that we see is in Genesis chapter uh, 18, we'll see this when we get there, um, Jesus actually shows up and has a conversation with Abraham. And Jesus appears in the burning bush when he's talking to Moses. That's Jesus who appears. Jesus announces the birth of Samson. And so this is not unique to this passage. This is something that happens. And often in evolution, one of the things that is so challenging is to say, hey, um, so where did life come from? At what point did dirt or whatever was there turn into a person? How did that turn into life? Well, we know exactly how it happened. God took dirt and formed it into a man. And then he personally breathed the breath of life into man. Mankind is personally created by God. And do you want to know how it happened? Well, you just read it. This is how human beings got there, exactly how it says. God forms us from the dust of the ground. He breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. You know, throughout Scripture, it makes reference to the fact that we came from dust, and we're going to return to dust. And that's not figurative. That is God made us from dirt, and we're going to return to dirt, and that's what happens. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east, He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is, look at this, pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, the tree, everybody is often wonders, hey, what's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And everybody says it's an apple. <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell us what kind of tree it was. And I've seen all kinds of things about how Apple computers, there's a bite taken out of the apple, and just it's, it's a weird all the things that people do with some of this stuff. Um, the, the tree of the knowledge and good, of good and evil, you know, I don't actually think there was anything different in that tree. It could have been an apple, it could have been an orange, it could have been anything. You know what made it the knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Nothing about the tree. Simply that God said, don't eat this. And the moment somebody disobeyed, all of a sudden they're going to understand good and evil. They will have experienced evil. So what made the tree of the knowledge of good and, of good and evil is not anything intrinsic in the tree. It's not like it was a poisonous fruit. It's that God told them not to do that. And that was their opportunity. And when they violated that, um, that caused the fall of the human race. That was a spiritual problem between them and the Lord. It wasn't the result of eating something poisonous. And so what we see is that the purpose in all of this is to worship God. And um, we were made. Uh, everything in this is attractive and good and inviting and pleasant. And there's one thing that God says, don't eat this. One of the things that um, you'll notice about this and this will factor into leadership. Um, who was there when God explained what not to do? Adam was there. Was Eve there? So Eve's not there. When God has this conversation, He makes Adam first. And one of the things we're going to learn about leadership is the New Testament tells us part of God's purpose in creation is expressed by who God made first. And so Paul tells us, 
Adam was created first. That's why he's a leader. And so there's a purpose in this. The other thing is that God gives instructions to Adam, and it's Adam's job to teach Eve. That's another expression of leadership. And then in chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, who ate, the, who ate first from the tree? Eve. And when God shows up and addresses the sin, who does God speak to first? Adam. And that's because Adam is the leader. And one of the things that I want to just express is that if you are a man in your family and in the church, God intends you to be the leader. And what went wrong in creation is Adam didn't exercise leadership rightly. And that's one of the things that went wrong. And that's God's purpose. And, and we need to understand as men that leadership is significant. It is to be spiritual leadership. It is not the mom's job to drag the family to church. That is the man's job. It is not the mom's job to think about for kids. Primarily, the responsibility is not the mom's to be thinking about kids. Do they understand the Bible? Am I preparing them to be able to face the struggles that they're going to face in life? If this little kid that right now isn't having all these struggles, as they get older and as they start to face struggles and as, as they're thinking about whether or not they are to worship God or they're going to rebel against God, what is it that I'm going to do to lay a foundation to see to it that my kids have an opportunity to walk with God? That is the man's responsibility. Whose job is it to lead family devotions? It's the man's job. It is not the mom's job to read the Bible to her kids while the dad goes off to work. The most important thing that men do is to be a spiritual leader in their home. And that is the purpose of the church and believers is to train men to be leaders in their home. And that doesn't mean that men don't work. God has also given that as a priority. But if things aren't going well in your family, God's going to knock on the door of the man first because it's His responsibility. That does not mean that women don't have a responsibility, but God intends men to be the leaders. And so that is what we see here. And Adam, uh, uh, this doesn't happen in the Garden of Eden um, uh, properly. We'll see that in chapter 3. And then God's going to describe the location of the Garden of Eden. It says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there divided, it became four rivers. The name was first was Pishon, and it was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. And there was gold, and the gold of that land is good, and Balaam and onyx and stone were there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river, the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Now, here's the thing that we understand is that everything about the earth changed after the flood. But this was written after the flood. And so God floods the earth. Everything has changed. So it's not like we can go back to this location and look and go, oh, this is what the Garden of Eden was like. Because the earth fell, and so the Garden of Eden was changed. When the flood happened, everything in the world was, was destroyed. And yet, um, when God is saying this is where it happened, when He's explaining this, God actually knows where this was. So I think the 
ground that was covered in the flood when the flood receded, we could go to this location and say, this is the area where the Garden of Eden was. It's completely different than it was when it was the Garden of Eden. And so God inspired it. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, He put it in the Garden of Eden to work it. And that's one of the things that we see is spiritual leadership has a purpose. And part of that purpose is work. Did you know that work is not a curse of the fall? Like, there are some things about work that changed, but work is not a curse of the fall. That's God's blessing. It's a gift to mankind. God intends people to work. It's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's an incredible gift. It's a blessing, a meaningful existence. You know, the Bible tells us this. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You know, that's one of the things that we teach little boys and we teach little girls is when you grow up and when you work and every single thing that you do has as its purpose God's glory. You don't work for money. You don't work for a raise. If you go to work and your boss doesn't appreciate you and you don't get treated the way you wanted to be treated, that has nothing to do with how hard you work. You don't just work if, if somebody's keeping an eye on you. You always work with all of your heart for God's glory because He's always seeing everything. And so these are things that we learn, and, and the purpose of leadership is work. That's one of the things that God intends. Um, you know, I think about, um, you know, this book when it, when it just talks about uh, God's leadership. You know, often uh, men can be abusive leaders and bad leaders and passive leaders. Um, do you ever see relationships? It's one of the things I think is, is we can have a tendency to look at people struggling with their gender, and we could just go, oh man, and we can have all these thoughts about how a person may struggle with their gender. But I would just say this, it is no different if you study, if you struggle to function the way God tells you to function. If as a man, you are not the spiritual leader in your home, you shouldn't look at somebody struggling with their gender and think it's different than the struggle you have, because God's told you to be the spiritual leader in your home. If you're passive, that is not what God intends from you. If you're abusive, weak men are abusive. And so if you're abusive in your leadership, if you're a bad leader, you should look to yourself, you should look at a world that's confused about gender, and we should realize that it's not just gender that people are confused about. It's leadership. And the whole issue of submission and encouraging leadership. If as a, a wife and a mom you don't follow well. You're not encouraging the submission. You're not an example of submission. You're not encouraging submission toward leadership. That is the same problem of stepping out of God's role as somebody struggling with their gender. So as we look around at the world and we go, you know, I really struggle to be a leader the way God intends. We should look at people struggling with their gender and go, I get it. I struggle too. And if we struggle to follow the leaders that God's given us um, in marriage, uh, we should look at the world struggling with their gender and go, I get it. Um, they struggle, and so do I. God intends men to be leaders. It's interesting. Um, I, there's this book. It's, its title is Irresistible. And one of the main themes of this book is to say that people misuse the Old Testament. So because they misused the Old Testament, we should not 
read the Old Testament. Wasn't written for you. It's not for you, even though there are verses in the Bible that specifically say these things were written for our instruction. Uh, even though there's verses that say that, you have this author, Christian author, that writes and says the Old Testament is not for you, don't read it. People abuse the Old Testament, therefore ignore the Old Testament. That's like saying, hey, there's people that abuse leadership, therefore don't be a leader. That's a wrong response. Um, we need to be leaders the way God intends us to be. I was thinking about, I was watching this football game, and there's a very talented, gifted uh, football player, and he's getting out there, amazing quarterback, and he's like throwing interceptions, and he's making some bad passes, and, and at halftime, uh, one of the newscasters goes up to the coach and says, man, the, 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 the quarterback's like totally messing up. What are you going to say to him at halftime? And you want to know what the coach didn't say? I'm going to go tell him, uh, you messed this up, you messed that up, you need to quit throwing the ball uh, because you're, you're, you're totally messing everything up. You know what the coach said? I'm going to go tell him, you got stinks. Just keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't let these things discourage you. Keep going. Um, that's how we should respond to leadership. That's not what it should be. We should say, hey, that's not the best leadership, but keep leading. Don't stop leading. Not you're, You really screwed up here. You are an abusive leader. Don't lead anymore. You're a poor leader. You, you, didn't, you didn't do this well. You shouldn't do it anymore. And yet that's how often we approach leadership instead of encouraging leadership. You know, I was thinking about um, 1 Peter gives some instruction to women on this. And it just says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. A good example, a submissive person who's encouraging leadership. You know, um, one time there was a, a guy who made a ministry transition, and I'd been running this event for years, and somebody else was taking over. So the first year I said, I'm going to do it, and I want you to be my helper. The next year, we did it together. And then the third year, I said, you lead this event, and I'll be your helper. And one of the things that happened was, as this guy was giving instructions and saying, hey, I want you to go do this, and I want you a group of people to go do that, uh, people would come to me and say, you know, Raj, when you were in charge of this, you did this differently, and I liked your way better. And one of the things I would say to them is I would say, hey, you know what? There, there are a lot of ways to do things. And I did it one way, and the, the one who's the leader now is doing it a different way. And I, I would say to this person, what would be much worse than doing something in not the best way would be to be arguing about which way we should do it. We could spend 20 minutes trying to figure out the fastest way to do it, and then if we do it and save two minutes, we've lost 18 minutes. It's just much better if we just do things. And then at the end, I, I thought about how it went. And you know what? I had been doing it a lot of years, and that always went well, but this guy did it a different way, and it actually worked out better. And so when we were sharing in the debrief, it was one of the things I made sure I pointed out. I'm like, oh man, when, when so-and-so led this this way, it was totally different than the way I did it, but it was better, encouraging his leadership. Um, I didn't sit around and go, oh man, I see him forgetting four things that he should be doing. But I'm not going to tell him. I'm going to let him figure it out the hard way. Uh, that's not how we support leadership. 
If, if we see somebody that we're following, if I thought he was going to make a mistake or forget to do something, I'd come alongside and say, hey, have you thought about this, this, and this? And then he would decide how he was going to handle that. Uh, if people would come to me and say, hey, Roger, how should we do this? I'd say, I don't know. Go ask him. And, and I would say, hey, hey, what do you want me to do? So I set an example to everybody of saying, hey, um, to this person, tell me, what should I do? And I publicly let everybody see him telling me what to do, and then I would just go do what he asked me to do. And one of the things I thought about was um, even though he was the one calling the shots and exercising leadership, I did not at all feel like my gifts, my talents, my abilities, my ability to influence I did not at all feel like it was set to the side or put on the side. I had great joy in helping other people follow his leadership, in encouraging his leadership. And if he had a question, hey, Raj, how should I do this? I, I gave him my opinion and then let him decide what he wanted to do. Um, I felt like I had more influence as a person following him than I did when I was actually the leader. And that is leadership and submission. It's not different influence. It's not a, a, a weaker ability to influence. It's a different way to influence. And sometimes the followers are more powerful and more influential than the person in leadership. But we need to encourage leadership and we need to exercise leadership. You may be in a situation where, as a leader, you're criticized, and every mistake you make is highlighted, and whenever you try to lead and something doesn't go well, people tear you down. Look what a terrible leader you are. Look what a bad job you did here. And if that's your environment, guess what? It doesn't matter, because God tells you that it's your job to lead. And so if you're not a good leader, you need to get a, be a better leader. If you're an abusive leader, you need to stop being an abusive leader. If, if you try to lead and, and, and as you're criticized, um, you think about those things and you go, yeah, actually that's true. Yeah, I was abusive in that. Well, stop doing that. If you're leading and somebody goes, oh, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, and you're doing this wrong, learn from it. But the appropriate response, the available response is not to become passive because God has designated you as the leader. One of the things that um, spiritual leadership definitely needs to be exercised and it needs to be encouraged. And you know, Satan is the root of all evil. Satan hates God. Satan hates you. He is manipulative. He is dishonest. And um, one of the things that we learn when we read Genesis chapter 3 is Satan can make a pretty good argument for things. And when Eve was listening to it, she bought it. And guess what? Satan's making great arguments. They're very logical. They make very good sense. And, and there are many people who look at what God says about how life should be, and then they listen to Satan's arguments, and they make good sense and they embrace those, and they disobey what God says. And they just go, you know, I think about what God's asking of me, and if I do that, that would be a terrible thing. That would have a bad outcome. And I just want you to know that when you're reasoning, and when you're logic, 
And when your brain thinks about what God says, and then your response is, is to say, that's a bad idea, that's not very good, I don't like that. What I want you to know is that is Satan speaking to your mind. And that's one of the things for me, there are tons of times that as I think about life, I think, you know, this situation, it seems terrible. And if I obey God, that's going to be bad. And then I just think to myself, actually, I know intellectually that that's not true. You ever been in a situation where you felt like lying was the good option? I mean, we've all faced that, right? And yet we know that disobeying God is never the best thing. And so when we feel a certain way or we think a certain way, we correct that with what we know is true of Scripture. And so um, that's something that we need to bring to this. One of the things that we see about leadership, if you look at Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, the bird of the heavens, and He brought them to see what man would call them. And whatever man called a living creature, that was its name. So God's going to help Adam see his need for a partner. He's going to see his need for a companion. And, and people get, have all kinds of issues over how could Adam have named all the animals in one day? Well, one of the things I want you to know is that God had made kinds. And so there wasn't a cocker spaniel and a pit bull and a great dane, and he wasn't coming up with names for all these animals. It was one kind. So it would be like a wolf would be what every single dog came from. And by the way, change within species is never genetic information being added. It's always removing genetic information. So if you take a wolf and you remove certain parts of its genetic information, you come up with a, with a bulldog. If you remove different parts of its information, you'd be left with a cocker spaniel. And so change within species always has to do with removing information. If you were to take people on the earth, there's all kinds of different races. If you could systematically breed every person until you had a person that was an exact equal amount of every race, that was Adam. And so there are much less animals like, than we common, commonly think of animals. Here's the other thing. People think about Adam, and they think of him as a person, and they have this evolutionary idea that, that Adam evolved, and that he used to be really dumb, but that people are getting smarter. Well, can I tell you something about Adam? Adam was the most intelligent person that ever lived on the earth. People are not getting smarter. People are getting dumber. And the issue with, we have a lot of technological advancement, and that's because there's the compounding of knowledge. And there's a very big difference between the compounding of knowledge and intelligence. It's like when somebody discovered a light bulb. That whole generation started, no, the next generation started knowing about light bulbs. They didn't start from scratch. They start with this information they already had. And so we've been building on information. So there's a compounding of knowledge, but people are dumber than they've ever been. Adam's brain was not impacted by sin. Adam's brain had not been corrupted through all kinds of genetic, negative genetic mutations. Adam and Eve were perfect intellectually, they were perfect morally, and they were perfect physically. If you could get a picture of Adam, that would be what the optimal man would look like. If you get a picture of Eve, that would be what the perfect woman would look like. 
because they were perfect. And so um, we see that happening. Adam names the animals, and this is him exercising dominion. And then it says, it goes on, uh, it says in verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the heavens, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. You want to know how, where gender comes from? You know, when you think about this whole idea of evolution, you think about the statistical, statistical impossibility of a being evolving as complex as we are. The moment you add gender to it, it doubles the complexity. Because now you have to randomly evolve a man, and you got to randomly evolve a woman that are so totally different and yet the same. Now take those statistics and multiply it times every single pair of animals on the earth. It is insane. Do you know where gender came from? How come there's a man and a woman? Because God created a woman, and He did it from a rib, just like God said. And then uh, it goes on, and it says in verse 23, Then the man said, This is at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, called woman, because she was taken out of a man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So Adam sees his need. God brings Eve, and he just thinks, Oh my goodness, this is the perfect thing. And he just loves Eve. And then says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know, God intends that marriage be permanent um, and that, the, that a, a man and a wife cleave. And, you know, in this world, we have all kinds of problems um, that come from divorce. There's all kinds of divorce. Um, God's intention is for marriage to be permanent. And, you know, nobody who's divorced should, in a sense, feel bad or overwhelmed by that. That's the reality. We live in a fallen world. Um, there are people who are divorced who didn't choose it. Um, somebody else divorced them. Uh, there are people who are divorced that got divorced before they were Christians. They weren't honoring, obeying, and following God, and they're divorced. There are people who were hard-hearted, and they were rebellious against God, and they said, I don't care what you say, God. I'm going to get divorced because I feel miserable, and I'd rather do what I want than what you say. And you know, even out of a sinful divorce, do you know what God does? He forgives, He's gracious, He's merciful, He puts things back together. I think about, uh, you think about David and Bathsheba, you know, this terribly sinful thing. And yet God blesses David and Bathsheba with the, with the next heir to the throne. God is gracious and merciful and loving and, and when people have gone through something, the, the heartbreaking reality of divorce, man, we should love and embrace. And if that's you, uh, you're a person who's had an opportunity to think about the brokenness of this world and the blessings of honoring and obeying God. But I'll just tell you what would be a tragedy is if as a church and if as a couple, we look at the terrible sin of divorce and embrace it or act like it's not a big deal. Um, we need to be people that are committed to permanent marriage and sex that is only expressed in marriage. You know, I was thinking about uh, my mom and dad. I'm going to close with this story. So my mom and dad had a terrible marriage. <laughs> I can count the good days of their marriage on one hand. 
You know, it's like, uh, you know, well, maybe two hands. They probably had 10 good, good days in my life growing up. They fought all the time. And uh, the root of that was my mom disobeyed God. God said, only marry a believer. <laughs> my mom married an unbeliever. And there was misery because of that. And I remember uh, my mom and dad going to marriage counseling. And they sit down with this marriage counselor who listens to them for like a session or two and says, yeah, I think after what I've heard, there's only one possible option to move forward. And that is that we need to figure out what is the easiest way to have a divorce? How can we have a, like an amicable divorce? Because you guys are incompatible. And my mom <laughs> gets up and she says, I came here to work on my marriage, not to figure out how to, how to unwind it. So you guys talk, but I'm leaving because I'm here to work on my marriage. And so she left. And you know what? My parents never did get divorced. At the end of my dad's life, uh, he ends up having a stroke and God erased his hard drive, and he really needed my mom. And I remember um, after his stroke and after he had been cared for, um, I'm walking with my dad, Michelle and I and my kids, and we're walking with my mom and dad, and they're just walking hand in hand, and they're really kind of enjoying each other's company. And I'm just thinking as an adult, I'm thinking, man, I never saw this. And I just looked over at my dad, and I said, Dad, isn't this amazing? Like, why couldn't your whole life have been this way? And my dad, even in a stroke, didn't lose a sense of humor because he looked over at me and goes, well, Raj, I know that I'm mad at your mom for something. I just can't remember what it is anymore. <laughs> you know, this is what I want to tell you. A lot of people say that divorce is better than conflict in a marriage. What I want to tell you, I am very thankful that my parents never got divorced. As difficult as it was, as much as it was not what God intends for a family, I'm thankful that they stayed married. And, and working on a marriage and as a believer, being the husband and wife that God intends is something that we should be committed to and something that we should do. So if you're divorced, uh, don't, don't feel judged. Um, you know, we have all kinds of things in our history. But the best possible thing is to honor and obey God. And that means that we men are leading and that women are following, and that is not a, a value issue. That is God's intention through creation. And every time we look at other people who struggle to embrace what God has said, we need to take a step back and think about the ways that we struggle to embrace what God has said. And then that gives us humility and compassion toward other people who struggle, and it inspires us to live the way God tells us to live. Let me pray for us. Uh, thank you for giving us your word. And Lord, I just ask that you would help us to be men who are strong leaders. And Lord, we definitely need your help. We fail in many ways. And God, I pray that you would help the women in this church and the women in marriages to love and encourage the leadership of their husband. And God, I pray that we would function the way you intend us to function as a team that accomplishes the task that you've given us in your name. Amen.